be thinking, dear you Will you change a ring with me, my love? Will you change a ring with me? It will be a token of our love When I am far at sea When I am far away from home And you know not where I am Love letters I will write to you From every foreign strand Hello and welcome to Mixed Media Talks, a forum for artists to talk shop with each other, go deep into the intersections between a wide variety of different media forms, process, philosophy, all things that touch art in our lives. And I hope to have a little fun getting to nerd out with our guests while we do it. I'm your host, Amelia Hogan, a mixed media artist, singer, painter, book artist, and I have a deep love of all things art. Today's guest is Julie Hannigan, who is a song collector who is a performing musician, vocals, guitar, banjo, dulcimer, fiddle, primarily traditional Irish and old-time American stuff, original songs and instrumentals, has a CD, American Stranger. Shannos is actually how I met her, is she gave a workshop on that when she came out to California a little while ago. Welcome, welcome, and what can you tell us about some of the stuff you do? Maybe some of the other directions you've taken your creative process over the years. Starting with the music, the collecting and the folklore stuff came as really a natural development of my interest in song and instrumental music, mostly traditional dance music. And when I was 10, my father, I mean, this is a story I've told many times, but it, I can't think of any other way of looking at it. It was like on the road to Damascus almost. My father bought a box set of LPs called The Folk Box, put out by Electra Records, and mm-hmm. it had Gene Ritchie singing Nottingham Town, it had Louis McCall singing Geordie, it had the Ian Campbell Folk Group, it had Clarence Ashley singing Cuckoo Bird, and Gene Redpath, just a huge variety of traditional and revival singers and instrumentalists, and I just was totally smitten from that on. I was interested before, but that bought records like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and I'd listen to them, the Clancy Brothers, but I just kind of kept taking it to the next level. My father, being interested in the stuff himself, he loved folklore, he loved traditional songs, he taught ballads and some of his English classes. So he encouraged me and would find bargain bin records on the traditional label, which were wonderful for me. It wasn't a huge, being in a fairly small city in southwest Missouri, it was nothing like being in the revival in, say, on the east or the west coast. It was very different, and you were more on your own with it. And I just simply got so involved with it that I just learned all the songs on the albums and and then started reading a lot. Just was very, very into it. And I ended up getting to go in 1978, the year after I graduated from Washington U, on a summer course over in northwest Donegal, Annagree, the name of the uh, small town. It was extremely cheap, really, when you think of it. It included, I don't know if it included airfare, but it was really quite affordable when I put my savings together with some graduation 
Education Gifts. And I ended up going there and really getting bit by the bug of the Irish language. The teacher, Gordon McLennan, who was a fine scholar, brought in a singer named Annie Gallagher, who had been taught by a singer named Sheila Gallagher primarily, and, you know, learned songs in that part of Donegal. She lived in Dor. I can't remember whether she sang or not, but she talked about the songs. She may have played a recording of her younger self singing Anwajin Wire, the mermaid, which is you know, sort of the almost the most recognizable song in the Irish language in Donegal, probably. I really, again, was bitten by that particular book, and I wanted to find out what all this Shannon's business was about, and I happened to be down in Dublin, waiting to, working my way back to London to take a plane home, and ran into a guy named Alan Feldman, who was probably best known for a book called The Northern Fiddler. He and a photographer put out, and he was very, very involved, heavily involved in traditional Donegal fiddling. And the book is splendid. And he said, have you heard of youth grants? I said, no. He said, well, there's this thing. And so I wrote off for instructions to somewhere in Washington, D.C. I think it was the National Endowment for Humanities. And I wrote a proposal. The only thing wrong with the proposal, in retrospect, was that I asked for too little money instead of more money than I thought I would need, which is a lesson. (laughs) I was only 21 or so at the time, so... I went behind the ears when it came to grant writing. Sometimes a bit of a struggle. I was hoping I could rent a car to have more mobility. But as it turned out, I had to rent a bicycle. So I pretended I was Seamus Ennis. The famous collector. My backpack only weighed like about 15 pounds, and I think the Edaphone weighed something like 70. So, oh my um, goodness. It was a bike without any gears, the kind you had to backpedal to break. Oh, um, I had one of those when I was a kid. Exactly, and sometimes you had to get off tiny little hillocks, humpy hills, and you'd have to get off and walk up to the next one. Mm-hmm. And I went to Ranafast a great deal to really to spend time with especially two singers there. Nellie Nivonel, whose nieces and nephews already formed the Bombay Band, and her cousin, Hugh Devani, Hugh Defadi Hugh who, a folklorist in his own right, had done a lot of collecting for the Irish Folklore Commission mm-hmm. there at home after he'd been in some kind of civil service job in Dublin, which he didn't care for much. So he was really happy when he was able to actually be paid money to collect songs in his own backyard, as it were. And he said, you know, I could set my own out I could get up at 10 o'clock if I wanted to. Sure. <laughs> Man, after my own heart. When you're when you're out doing performances and shows and parties and sessions and things that happen, I think in particular, there's a big tradition of the late night song in Shenna singing. It's those quiet moments where everybody's attention is drawing close. Well, one thing I don't know, one thing I didn't ask is how late people would visit Oh. <laughs> they told me about the house visiting. Ironyield was the name they used. It'd be like Kayleeing or... Right. If you went to, you know, out for an evening. Now, you could just go to a house and visit a single person or family, or you could go for a gathering at which it was known that there would be singers and storytellers. And some, as Hudy told me, some of the houses in his townland were known for Ironyield for their crack everything. The Cora and the Crack, he talked about that, and basically conversation as an art. And I noticed that a great deal in the first few years I was in Ireland, starting in 1978, is that people like to talk, people like to converse. And I really enjoyed that. And being witty, you didn't have to be witty, but 
you could be. It and, helps. Uh, it was. It could be fun. People like to laugh. I mean, they're obviously serious side to them, but people like to laugh. Hughie and Nellie were so. I didn't see as much of them as perhaps I could have, but I was afraid of intruding. They were older, but they were very welcoming. And I had never really had close grandmother and grandfather, and they were sort of. They kind of took the place of the experience that many people have with their grandparents. I felt that they were mentors, and I felt as though they they could tell me stories about the old days. And Isn't that the way of this stuff, though, that people are excited to pass on traditions and have young people listening and interested in listening? Most of them were. I did have a, a couple of people close the door in my face. <laughs> At one time, a woman just never showed up. I had to hitchhike oh. to her cottage, and she wasn't there. I finally gave up after two hours or three. Oh. And uh, things like that happen. It's unfortunate. But it was the uh, exception rather than the rule. And mostly, yes, they were very happy to share. It's funny. I, I know that the way that I have learned songs my whole life, and when I say my whole life, I mean... There has never been a moment in my memory where there were not folks singing old songs in my world. That's, um, that's wonderful. When I was very young, I heard records and my father sang, but he was singing things like Burl Ives' version of The Fox Went Out on a Winter's Night, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I also sang to myself a good deal. Yeah. When I was six, we had kittens and I made up a song about how the, my brother just told me about Sassy flies. <laughs> so I, I made up a song about how stung the kittens and they all died. <laughs> you know, and I cried and cried. And little kids like to cry. It's a fact. Jean Ritchie talks about that. In, uh, I think it's in Singing Family of the Cumberlands. She talks about making herself cry with songs. It's a thing for some reason. But yeah, I always loved to sing. I, so it was always part of my DNA. And my mother was a singer. Her primary instrument was violin. Mm -hmm. But I th she was a soprano, and I think I probably got my voice from her. My dad was never able to get lessons as a child, growing up in a small town in Nebraska during the uh, Depression, but he loved music, and he listened to the radio all the time, and he listened to everything. He heard the Carter family on clear channel stations from the border of Mexico, as well as opera. And so I grew up with all of that. I grew up with early music. I loved that intensely as well. And of course, my mother playing Bach. And when I got old enough and good enough, I played Bach duets with her. Yeah. I had that, but I never made a real, I don't think I ever made a distinction between, I mean, I knew that, that there were different kinds of music, but I loved them all. I loved jazz. I'd say the only thing I wasn't real fond of was commercial country and western. Everything else was such a, a revelation every time I heard a new opera or a new song or got a new record. I guess I, I started hearing more and more traditional in terms of the Irish stuff, more and more traditional singers. First with Mary O'Hara, but she's sort of a step away. She's a little bit more polished, but she did put out this one album on traditional label, which was as close to traditional singing as she ever got, and it gave me, it had Irish Gaelic songs on it. I think that probably was part of what got me interested in that repertoire and the language. What is that sort of tickle in your brain that says, ooh, this? How hard to define. I don't know. Is it melodic structure? Is it the uh, well, freedom of it? Is it the... I do like a good melody. I am very drawn to melody. Although I also like, you know, in classical music, I like chords and things like that. I liked what a lot of the revival musicians were doing 
with backing Irish songs. So I got interested in that eventually. And as far as the old time stuff was concerned, the most seminal record for me in high school was something called was Instrumental Music of the Southern Appalachians. Began on the traditional label, which was just ubiquitous at the time and quite affordable. So and it just had some of my heroes like Hobart Smith and Etta Baker who was an African-American blues player from North Carolina, and Ed Presnell on dulcimer, and it was just an astoundingly good record. And Liam Clancy, interestingly enough, was involved in that. He was part of the whole traditional label endeavor. So, of course, there were some Clancy family albums, and one that featured Tommy Makem doing more, slightly more traditional songs than he usually did. When I say that, that sounds funny, because he definitely sang traditional songs to Clancy Brothers, but he would sing them unaccompanied. He would, it would be a, a slightly different listening experience. So it all just kind of coalesced, and I think I, I kept getting back more and more to what people refer to as the pure drop. The really clearly old, yeah. sort of resonant. <laughs> and you just have a feeling. You do, After a while, you develop a sense of what's older. One of my favorite albums when I was about 14, 15 was The Lark in the Morning. And that introduced me to people like Patty Tunney and Sarah Makem and several other people. My brain is glitching. But that was a very important one. I, I really wanted to hear more of Patty Tunney, especially, so I got albums of his. Eventually, when I got over to do my, quote, collecting and interviewing, I was pretty steeped in what I could get that way. Oh, also, I'd heard that by that time in college, I'd heard the boys of the law. They're great. This litany of fantastic musicians, by the way. And Cal McConnell, I loved his singing, and I spent my year abroad at the University of Sussex in near Brighton on the south coast of England, and the boys came to Sussex once to do a concert on campus, and I baked a porter cake and bought a cider, invited them back to my on-campus flat for a party, and I got a fiddle lesson from Allie Bain, and Cal and I exchanged ballads. Pretty cool. I was 20. That was that time. So I was already, I was kind of primed to then go back to Ireland a couple of years later to do that course, and then to find out, okay, I can kind of get into this in much more depth, which I did. And it wasn't easy a lot of the time, not just because of the transportation problems, but also because it's just, it takes a lot of chutzpah to approach total strangers and ask them to sing. So I'm glad that the negative experiences were minimal because I was quite sensitive. And, but the other people were so wonderful. There was a lot of lag time where it was lonely and it rained a lot. That is also a part of the climate that there, right? It was in 1978 and 79 were two of the wettest summers on record. So everybody was getting sick. So it was hard, but I don't know. I toughed it out and I went down to Connemara and somehow I'd gotten the, the name of a couple of great singers down there. Ended up just having a marvelous time that was totally unexpected because I really had no experience of that part of the country. And it was very different in feel, the way they sang, and the fact that they still gathered in pubs and sang. You didn't get that as much in Donegal, at least the part I was in. It just, there were sessions, like at Hugh Beggs in Gidor, which were I'd say 90% music and 10% song. But if you were known to be a singer, you were always asked to sing. Fight. This is Myra Nguyen's father, Francie Nguyen. He was the fire tea. He was the, the MC, if you will. And he always asked singers, even if they only had two songs each, 
you could predict what they were going to sing. They were always asked, and I was always asked. And it was sort of a lesson in etiquette. But when I went down to Connemara, I actually saw people singing in public in bars, almost as though they had moved their Kaylee from the house into a pub. And that was pretty fascinating. And, of course, I'd never seen people do the arm-twisting thing before, where people take your hand and then move it in a circle how to describe the motion just around and around and it's like winding up yourself as a music box kind of yeah or i was thinking (laughs) i was thinking more like a ringer washer but cranking away it's like the movement of the hand so for listeners who don't know what this what this feels like or looks like it's like the movement of the hand is part of instilling or working with a body memory of the song and your place in the song or something oh it's i think uh, yeah well it had a lot to do too with being in Encouraging and also wanting to be a part of the participate in the song in a more complete way than just listening. But I have to say that when people have done it to me, and my friend Bridget Fitzgerald, who's from Connemara, says it drives her crazy too. It distracts me, and they'll and sometimes they'll squeeze your hand and. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the words. I know they're doing it from a a good place. (laughs) I understand their motivations are are pure, but it's it's just harder for me to concentrate with that. It is definitely part of the tradition. I don't know whether people do that anymore or not. It's been so long since I've been over there. The person that did that to me was maybe my first trip to Ireland. I spent a few weeks out in Killarney. I was working at a youth hostel out there. It was oh, wow. just before my 18th birthday. Oh, wow. And someone took me by, and I was so surprised in that moment that someone would be trying to be that kind of encouraging in that way. It was just like, it was so unusual, but it was a really sweet older woman who was just elated that a young person would have bothered to learn a song and treat it with care. Mm-hmm. I think that was, that's, it's like their enthusiasm sort of pours out of their hands or something in that process. Mm-hmm. There's a rhythm. There can be a rhythmic quality to it, sort of in keeping with the rhythm of the song. Although sometimes it's just simply a spontaneous response and doesn't always match the rhythm yeah. quite. So it, that's why I find it disturbing. It's from a place of recognizing. I don't know whether it's a kindred spirit, but just somebody who's. It's just a. It's a way of participating. You know, and another way of participating, of course, is saying good now, good girl, my who, or Gia Gajol that way. God be with you forever. And you know, that's part of it, too. That does not distract me, partly because people know when to say it, not to say it when it'll really distract you. For some reason, it's almost a kind of art in itself. So I was learning I was learning songs when I was doing all this, and I was learning about them. I was learning about the tradition. A lot of people seem to expect that I was just going to record songs, but I really had this long questionnaire. So I knew most of the singers were would have been collected already. Like Nellie, her entire repertoire had been recorded by her nephew, Michal Oglum, and that was in, in UCD Dublin, University College Dublin, archive. And I was even given a photocopy of all the songs. So that was a really nice little tool. But I always asked about the background, not just background of songs, but also about how they learn songs and in what contexts. I really got a sense of the, the richness of the tradition that was way, way more, um, way deeper than I could have ever gotten from listening to records. So it was kind of total immersion, I guess. Yeah. And it was lovely. And Hudy and Nelly, well, other singers too, I sang for them. At that point, I was mostly singing American songs for them. I once 
for Hudie. I can't remember which song it was. It might have been Arise, Arise. I did that, but then he said, give us another. A bird doesn't fly on one wing. That was really cool. And Ooh, lovely uh, turn of phrase, too. I know, and I sang a song that I had learned from the Max Hutter collection. Misspent adolescent youth was spent listening to and learning songs from the Max Hutter collection. He had been a, he was a, a salesman, but he traveled for his work, and the great collector Vance Randolph had met him and said, hey, you know, you're in a perfect position to uh, collect songs. So he got a wire recorder and started doing that. So he had every tape had been copied onto cassettes. So you go to the library and check them out. And that's what I did. And I learned an awful lot. So they were my teachers too. And they didn't always say much, but there was still, sometimes there would be a comment here or there. And one woman in particular I liked was a woman named Bertha Lauderdale, who said that her grandfather came over to Arkansas when he was a small child. And indeed, all the songs she sang were Irish, essentially. And so I learned to do my lovely Nancy from the recording of her. And I sang that for Nellie. And the next time I came, Nellie went into her bedroom and said, wait a minute. And she was blind, by the way. So she went into her bedroom and came out with a Tandy tape recorder, which is like what we call realistic. That's the brand. And put it down on the table and said, sing Nancy for me. That was one of the biggest compliments I ever had in my life. I had sung a song that she liked so much that she wanted to hear it again, maybe learn it. I don't know, but that was just um, extremely moving to me. I, uh, I love it. You've got this beautiful, long love affair with collecting and learning songs and studying their origins and the poetry of them and the stories around them. But where do you where do you want to go next with, with your exploration of this craft? I'm not sure. I mean, I was, I did do, by the way, I did do some collecting in uh, Virginia when I was getting my, I got a, a master's in folklore in the mid-80s at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And so I spent some really wonderful time with a ballad singer named Eunice Yates McAlexander in Meadows of Dan, Virginia, the most beautiful name, and it was the most beautiful place you could imagine. And I was thinking about doing my thesis on her, but then I decided to do it on Bridget, Bridget Fitzgerald and Sister Sally Coyne up in Boston. So I, yeah, I have done quite a bit, and the, the last thing that I was working on when I kind of just stopped doing a lot of field work and that was a project looking at comparing house entertainments of various kinds, including the Cayley versus the here in the Ozarks. People used to do that. They would just go visit their neighbors, not necessarily sing or play, but then there would be times when they would, or they would tell stories, etc. So I was wanting to do a comparison of house entertainments in Ireland, especially in Northern Ireland. I also, I did interview a few people for the project. I just haven't gotten the recordings. Yeah, no, I mean, of course, there's always work to do. That was something that I at one point thought might be a book, but I don't know if I have the, I don't know if I have the energy for it or the focus for it right now. Maybe at some point it will come back. Mostly, you know, I'd love to get back to Ireland and just visit everybody. There are too many gigs over there for revival singers or any singers really but, but I did get to sing several times and it helped to pay my way at Idges Gale which is an a Irish language summer school but I call them kill I really think it's splendid. I also went up to one in Pidor called Incranic, but I spent most of my time when I was doing language study in the summer. When I was, at, this is fast forwarding to when I was at Notre Dame in the summers, getting to go over and, you know, on a short shoestring budget and 
take classes, and one of the ways I helped to defray expenses was doing concerts. And I started off the very first time I did one, my friend Lilith Alira, and I got to know him through correspondence and then person, and he, he was the one who suggested, why don't you come up, I'm going up to uh, Glenn this week. So he, he did all the introductions in Irish. And I was singing in Irish, but I didn't feel as though I was strong enough to do the introductions. By the time, by the, the last couple of times I was doing these, I was just doing the intros off the top of my head, first with notes and then off the top of my head. And I would sing them in Irish and English when I could. I've done a lot of translating of songs so that they can be done back-to-back, Irish and English, which is an old tradition as well, which probably arose in the 18th century, of people singing the song in in different languages, in in this case in Irish and English. So that would work for the the students who had no word of Irish when they got there. So, you know, you did that for their benefit, and yet there were others who were pretty fluent. It was really an honor and great. I find myself trying to go back to that question you asked about what does it for me? Why does traditional Irish song speak to me? And I would say melody is a huge part of it, but also just and words. And I think their directness. One thing I like is uh, it is totally distinct from something like opera, in which emotion is coming out of every pore of the singer. Is that there's a restraint about emotion. You don't you don't emote. You your emotions come across almost because you're being restrained. That's interesting. You don't use much vibrato, typically, and I think it's very similar to many, well, to many song traditions that have you know, that kind of delivery, although there are all kinds of, of traditions like Bulgarian in which you have that singing from the, but there's kind of, to me, an immediacy about it. That, it um, feels close to me. Like, it feels yeah. like it's because it's, as you put it, restrained, there's a sort of a small window into this vast world inside of the person you're listening to. So you yeah. do have to listen very closely to... Yeah, I'd say the word I'd say would be uh, intensity. Mm, yeah. There's an intensity to it that's almost because of the restraint. And you just takes you away. I can respond to all kinds of music, you know, and just feel like I'm being sent to some special place. But it's just, it's, uh, so it's different though with every single kind of genre or idiom or, I still find it very difficult to describe, but I'd say that in a word, the intensity is a large part of it for me. There was a, an album that Roberta Flack, who started off as a, a very interesting singer and she later went kind of pop, but gotta make a living. But her first album was called Quiet Fire. I liked that mm. because that, that to me is sort of what some of the singing is like. And it's wonderful to sing it for people who know what it's about, yeah. who know that style of music because they understand it on a deeper level. And so there have been times, for example, when I've been singing American traditional songs in a folk club and just not felt that I mean, they could surprise you and come up later and say how much they loved it, but you couldn't tell in that moment. Whereas sometimes you just feel as though the audience is just right there, almost holding your hand metaphorically. So getting back to the arm twisting, it can be very, very intimate. Yeah, a very intimate medium. And of course, most of the singing was done in the house in the old days, and having it out in public is, is new. I do love performing. I like getting up in front of an audience, as Jean Ritchie says, making a fool of myself. I really enjoy that, but there's also a lot to be said for just singing for five people. I'm really enjoying these Zoom sessions a lot. I don't go to a whole lot. can't spend every day doing that, but 
some of the smaller ones have that kind of intimacy, and people often sing unaccompanied. There's one I'm going to tonight that doesn't have strict rules about that, though, and I've really been enjoying playing guitar again and banjo, because I just haven't been, and I miss it. I miss it a lot. The format sets it up rather beautifully for that hyper-focus or intensity, because Zoom only allows audio input for any one source at a time. Yeah, which used to really bother me at first, because I'd hear this silence. I've gotten used to it, but it took a while. I mean, did you have that feeling with it, too, where you're, you know, you've done a lot of of sort of mini concerts, which I've I've seen a a few of. No, it's still awkward. (laughs) difference between, like, I think mini concerts where there are people in the room with you that are listening at the same time and you can see their faces on the screen and you can kind of feel like you're in a Brady Bunch version of everybody listening around the circle, Mm -hmm. but... When it's like a YouTube video or a live Facebook, it's so awkward because I can't see and connect with that moment of intimacy with the person who is listening. And I always feel like with traditional singing, Irish traditional singing, American traditional singing, all of these close listening styles, there's a requirement for it to be a little bit of a conversation. The listener has to show up fully present and willing to look at and find that quiet fire and to be able to see and acknowledge and be present for the warmth of that small intensity. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. bombast. It's not this huge show. It's it's something much more subtle. Yeah, I, I've been really amazed by how much I've connected with audiences and before COVID, but fairly recently, you know, within the last five years. I did a mini tour out in Washington, D.C. about four years ago, and then I was out in, as you know, in San Francisco area. Mm-hmm. Over a little over, was it three years now? Yay, how'd that go? Sounds right. <laughs> anyway, I was just really bowled over by the reception I got. And that's, I guess, why you do it. It really feeds you. And when I'm not performing, I feel like a plant that's not getting watered enough. And uh, I, I don't know what it is. But before, not every singer is a performer. Eunice Yates McAlexander, the ballad singer I was telling you about, she didn't really care to perform. And, and she didn't even set out to learn songs. She only had one song in her repertoire that she'd actually learned on purpose. She got it out of a book of Virginia songs. But mostly she just absorbed them by osmosis from listening to her mother and listening to one of her best friends, Ruby. And I asked her, did you ever go just walking around singing songs up and down the road? No, but Ruby, she used to say she'd go over the hills and the valleys singing. And I never did. We're all different. Yeah, we are different. And also there are commonalities and threads that that carry through when you are a person who loves that kind of intense, quiet thread of hyper-presence almost. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard, I think, for a lot of audiences who aren't used to it and who don't understand that they have to show up for the art for it to bring them magic, if that makes any sense. Mm, mm-hmm. it, it does. And people will often say things like, well, why don't you have the big show behind you and dress up in a ball gown and, and make a big sparkly light show and turn Lady Gaga. <laughs> well, I'm not Lady Gaga. It's a different art form. It's a different feel and flavor and approach to music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I also do singer-songwriter songs and some of my own, and they tend to be songs, not all of them, but a good number of them tend to be in a sort of traditional style. But, I mean, I even I even used to do a Tom Petty song. I never had a chance to perform it except in bars, but I did things like that just for fun. Uh, yeah, so I have a kind of wide 
focus at times, depending on what. Do you have any any themes that that you keep coming back to or cycling back to? As well, I've I've known an awful lot of love songs, but that's not unusual. They seem to dominate almost every song form and creation. I like Richard Thompson's songs a lot because they express a sort of wide variety of experiences. You know, things like you know. One of the songs of his I do is When I Get to the Border, which expresses a sense of wanting to break out, break free from the restraints of ordinary human life. And another of his songs that I really love very much, and that as I age, it becomes more and more, makes more and more sense to me, is a song he wrote called Strange Affair, which is about the aging process, essentially, and mm. people dying. And it, he based it, a, it's sort of a semi-translation, I think, of a Sufi poem. So, so there is that element, I guess. Funny because you you would think of the Sufi as being a little bit more resigned or something, but perhaps before you get to the resignation, you have to express the despair. But it's just beautiful. And again, he's a very melodic writer. My guitar playing is quite melodic, and and not everybody put out a couple of Mel Bay books, and one of them has a CD with it. And one of my friends guitar friends who listened to it felt that the settings weren't sort of fleshed out enough. But he does a lot of ragtime and a lot of... And I, I was keeping it pretty sparse. I finally realized that some of that was because I wanted because of how I hear, like say Irish music and Irish tunes and not wanting to dominate the tunes because I quite like to just listen to solo flute and solo fiddle and that kind of thing too and play solo fiddle but it's also I think one of my big influences was lute music and lute songs I, mean, I one of the reasons I learned guitar was I wanted to accompany myself on John Dallin's so I think there's there's some of that there and they they're very melodic melodies and counter melodies not kind of a, a full harmonic style of accompaniment. How do you translate what you hear? Do you approach uh, it from a I have to mimic what I learned? Or do you, what's, well, that, first, what's the element of you that comes into? When I was first learning, I don't know if I mimicked exactly, but I try to learn fairly faithfully, but without ever, for example, putting on an accent. When I sing Irish songs, I think I sound more mid-Atlantic than anything. I tone my accent down. Um, my parents were from Nebraska and Kansas, so I don't have a really, I don't I don't have the Ozarks accent, for example, even though I lived here since I was five and a half. And I used to regret that because I always thought, yeah, it's more authentic. But no, it's what I have. So, But mimicking in terms of, yeah, like singing every ornament that Patty Tunney put into a song, that kind of thing. Did the same thing with fiddle. And you sort of apprentice yourself when you're starting out, I think. I think you make the song your own by just singing it a lot until it becomes part of you and you don't think about it. There are times when I'm singing where I'm hearing the original singer in my head, and that's not a bad thing. And to my mind especially, it's not a bad thing if it's a male singer, because you're always going to sound different them if you're female. There are times when I consciously, like if I hear a song and I think there's too much ornamentation in the way I'm hearing it presented, which is rare because I tend to listen to a lot of really, really old recordings. But when I hear a younger singer in there, you're putting in a lot, I often reduce that. And I even sometimes don't do as, as much ornamentation on a song as I used to do, quite consciously, because I want to make sure that I'm letting the song speak for itself. I think you can bury a song, you know, with ornamentation and too much emphasis on... This came really from the Arachtus, I think, and from competitions generally, that you're not supposed to take a breath, preferably until you get to the 
second, the end of the second line of a four-line stanza. And there are so many singers who don't do that, but a lot of singers who grew up kind of with that as an ideal have really worked on breath control. And that's fine, but Hudy's brother, I, I got to spend time with him in the early 2000s. And we always spoke in Irish, which was sometimes a struggle for me because I'd be with him for a while and then I'd have a little bit of a brain break. And then I'd get back on the track, thank heaven. His idea of singing was that it should be nadrach, or natural. Very much an immediate expression of the person without being there being too much there. It shouldn't sound like you're getting up and trying to impress a judge, an adjudicator at the fla or something like that. It should sound like this is you know, what I'm feeling and hearing, and here it is. And he also talked about in the old days when they did the house visit. They might be talking and then somebody break into his song because it fit what they were trying to describe. So it was part of the conversation. That, to me, is very interesting because it, it, it just it makes it all a lot more of a piece. I think another way that I have made songs my own is, to, you know, I say sing them, and, sing, and I, I do mean that, and... I do kind of sing when I'm in the kitchen or walking or taking a shower or any number of things that don't require a lot of brain or, you know, to do. And it's, you know, that, that I think helps too because you just, you're not rehearsing it, but you're singing it, practicing it anyway. Mm -hmm. Like folding it into your life and your connection with it and your daily experience. In your yes. I, I remember when I was in Donegal back in the late 70s, the, the landscape for me would just suggest songs because I learned some of, of Patty Tunney's songs already. So I would be walking. Sometimes I couldn't get a lift and I'd be walking long stretches in between Bunbeck and, and Anagri, for example. There were these streams coming down in a couple of different places right next to the road. And I would start singing the mountain streams where the Moorcocks crow. And then there was another place with a, a very old a ruin of what had used to be a small factory. And I would start singing the factory girl. Yeah. And if I was by the sea, I would start singing something that reminded me of the sea. So I am kind of free associative in that respect. And that is true, I think, with my poetry as well. I, you know, I just, I, I don't know. That's a process that I find very difficult to define. And But again, you have to just do lots of it. Unfortunately, I'm not very good at just sitting down and doing a practice poem. I used to, but I tend to need the muse to speak to me, and she often takes extended holidays. One of the things that I love in Ireland in recent years is there's a, a big connection with people who do traditional music and song and the poets. And, well, the late Kieran Carson was a prime example of that. He was both a musician and a poet. He could see all angles of the thing. Many poets will have music in their poetry readings. Mm -hmm. And I got to, the first time I did that was, oh, sometime in the early 2000s, I was giving a paper, an Irish studies conference in, in Creighton, in Omaha, Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And Eamon Wall, who's an Irish-American poet, who said, I'd like us to do this thing where I do some poems and you, you sing something. And, you know, we were sitting in the back of a van on the way to the performance space to campus. He said, well, I'm going to read a poem about such and such. And do you have anything that would relate to that? And I did. And, and it worked out wonderfully. And then when I was living in Belfast about 10 years ago, Maeve McGookian, who's a fabulous poet from Belfast, she's shy in many ways. She doesn't like performing. She doesn't like doing readings. So she asked me, could you come along and help me out, play a few things on the fiddle, 
sing a couple of songs and maybe do a poem or two. So it was amazing. And it was the whole book of poetry was on grief. So I learned a song that Doc Watson's wife, Rosa, wrote called Your Lone Journey. And just the, very shortly after that, found out that a good friend of mine here in the Ozarks had died. And it was a strange kind of coincidence. But uh, I also read one of my poems. And this was this huge for me. I heard an audible gasp from the back of the room. And the Irish really like poetry. And it's really neat to, to read one of yours and to have a reaction like that. And it was so nice of Maeve to give me that opportunity as well. And I started to read some of my stuff, and I almost always sing in the course of it. Like, I'll sing the song that I've done, that translation of it, I'll do a macabre performance. So I have also kind of taken my cue from that kind of collaborative event where you're intertwining two different art forms. And a lot of my poetry is about music, too. It does all kind of interact on some level. So have kind of a direction to take some of these these thought threads that we're spinning here. And that is, you mentioned the natural voice and what does the song want to say and how people connect with that intensity, the restrained intensity. What is true? How do you think about a performance that doesn't feel genuine for the musician? Like, what is your definition of truth relative to the lyric material? Well, the, the, the song or the musician hmm. is coming across that the music that a musician can come across before the singer or the musician, that they're conduits for whatever they're performing, rather than just showing off. And uh, I think, unfortunately, the, uh, a lot of the competitions kind of encourage the concept of showing off, and I don't think that that's very helpful. On the other hand, some some kids grow up with that, but they, they manage to rise above it, and I, I really, I've been really happy to hear that. People playing from the heart. And, uh, or singing from the heart. It's one of those things that you, it's difficult to define, but you know it when you hear it. It contains the meaning of the song as well as the experience of the singer, but you're not focusing on the singer. They're not getting in the way of it. That's actually how I think about my relationship as a singer to the music. The best compliments I get are when people say things like, oh my God, I went to this place and that made me think of and here's what I felt and they're, you know, weeping and they're, they're laughing at the funny moments or they're, you know, I've taken them someplace, but they're not thinking about me. And they're not thinking, wow, how pretty they're thinking, I want someplace transformative. Like my job as a singer is to know the craft of how to do the mechanics of making the song well enough that I can get out of the way of it. Mm-hmm. That I'm not resting on my mechanical cerebral process in analyzing how the song is supposed to be precise. It, like, I'm not in my head about it. I'm yeah, letting that get in the way. Yeah, well, that's with anything. You learn the mechanics and then you transcend them. And part of that is through repetition and just being immersed in whatever form you're practicing. Eventually it sounds like you, and eventually it's... But you have to stop. I'd say almost everybody starts off imitating. And when I was starting to write poetry in my teenage years, I started off by doing an awful lot of parodies yeah. of well-known poets like Byron and Shelley and that sort of thing. You have to do that. I mean, it's like, it'd be like being a baseball player. You have to learn, just very self-consciously learn how to pitch a curveball or a change-up. And then eventually it just sort of comes to you and do it without thinking. Yeah. And you might decide, okay, I'm going to do this, but you've gotten to the point where it's just, again, natural, an extension of yourself. So the person, the, the individual who does yeah. the singing and does the 
playing or whatever the art form is important, but what makes it work is whether it transcends the limits of your personality and speaks to other people. And the way to do that is to not have it be all about you. You might have this ideal of a song in your head and you might try for that, but it's less about the mechanics. You can make a split-second decision, like I was describing earlier, to leave certain ornaments out or something like that in the course of singing. But that's because it's like, okay, this is, I'm concentrating on the story and this is how I feel that I can do it best. So it doesn't mean that you totally lose consciousness or intentionality about what you're doing. It just means that you, you can use those in a way that has already been absorbed. You don't have to think about overthinking. Then you can relax and enjoy it as though somebody were singing it to you. Nice. Have there been barriers, or do you think that there are unnecessary barriers to exploring this art form that you've encountered? You maybe overcome some of them, if they exist, and if not, then... I hear them in in other people's... I feel as though some younger singers try to sound too much like their models. Yeah. And of course, I did that, but I didn't put out records. I went through my June Tabor phase, I mean, you know, things like that. You get past that, I believe. Most people do. But I, I do hear people trying to sound too authentic, and so they almost overdo the, the accent. I'm thinking of all kinds of singing, just not just Irish. If it distracts the listener, it's going to detract from the performance and from the process of getting the, the song across to the listener. Are you a good audience member? Or I do you have to so. work to be a good audience member? No, it. I only have to work at it if I'm really not enjoying it. But I mean, if I go to a concert, I'm almost bound to enjoy it because it's somebody I know. Oh, yeah, I would say so. You know, I was taken to performances, stage performances from a very early age. I don't remember clapping when I was five, but I may have. My mom played in the pit for a mall on the night visitors, like that sort of thing. But I must have picked that up pretty quickly. And yeah, I do love listening to other people. I, I have one friend in England who says he doesn't go to concerts because he, he doesn't really enjoy listening. He wants to be playing. So he goes to sessions. Mm-hmm. I feel as though, you know, he's missing out on all that that's out there that's not him. It's wonderful to play with other people. It makes you high. Sure. It's fantastic. But if you're going to listen to somebody, you need to you need to forget about yourself and listen. So I guess I never thought of it that way, but I guess what you were saying earlier about audiences having to come as a listener to whatever the event is and with a sense of understanding so that they're open to what they're hearing and can appreciate it fully. Yeah. A friend of mine, the fellow from the first episode we did here, is a performing artist in a totally different direction from traditional singing. And he says, you know, the audience is there to be swept away and they are cheering for you and they want you to succeed. They want those moments. They're excited to find them if you meet them there. But if you're taking yourself out of it by being distracted by your mess ups or your flubs or your awkwardness or something, then you don't give them the chance to fall in love with being swept away by the experience. And I think for me, acknowledging those moments, because we all have them, right? Every performer I've ever met has, well, screwed that up, moving on, right? But you're not taking someone out of the experience of being in the moment with you and in conversation with you as a performer. 
unless you draw attention to it and start feeling down about yourself. And then you take them there too. And then they're like, oh, well, that they're disappointed that you're disappointed. Well, I must hide it very well because when I was playing at a house concert in Oakland three years ago, I wasn't playing all the notes in the right places of an instrumental on guitar. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was great. It was really hot. I guess they closed all the windows and there was some fire smoke outside. I was really hot. It affected me too. Nobody minded. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I just thought, oh, what a flub. And there was another time when I was playing up in, uh, this was uh, at the end of a weekend, which was a piping festival, Timmel, uh, up in St. Louis. I had been having to use my inhaler a whole lot because of my asthma. And so my fingers were shaking a little bit. My hand was shaking. So there I was accompanying myself on one of the songs I was doing. And my fingers going in strange directions. Afterwards, I was talking to Martin Hayes. And, and I said, I was sorry for all the mistakes. He said, what mistake? And he really meant it. And I said, oh, that's the beauty of open tunings. And sometimes the surprise notes are exactly what you needed and you didn't know. And yeah, I mean, we've all had those, what, you messed up? Nobody knew. Nobody cared. Nobody was bothered by it. I think as musicians, we care about the craft and doing the song justice so much that we often, I wasn't good in this moment, you know, we are often our own worst critics in a lot of places. (laughs) And people are just glad for whatever it is, you know, you're messing up this cake, this beautiful cake that you had in your head, and only you knew what the shape of that cake was supposed to look like. And you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's not everything I meant it to be. And they're like, but I get cake. Yeah, that was one of the wonderful things about, like I said, the last five years when I've been playing, I've I've just felt as though the audiences were wholly accepting of everything I did. It was such a gift to me. Are you responsible for how you make the audience feel or how they respond to what you share? Only in part, as you're presenting it to them. And I also like to elicit laughter whenever possible. Years and years ago, when I was starting to do folk clubs and stuff, I gradually developed patter. And I used to even memorize long shaggy dog stories and things like that. I eventually got to the point where it was just sort of spontaneous and I, I like to make puns and often something would come up that gave me an opportunity to make a pun and get a laugh. I mean, yeah, you're a performer, you're doing something, but it is an interactive art form of forming of any kind. The audience's participation, even if it's quiet, can still come across in a very meaningful way and I, I think, yeah, some of my favorite performing experiences were in sort of -of out-of-the-way places, like in Eunice McAlexander. She kind of got me a gig at the Reynolds Homestead, the Reynolds tobacco family in Mm -hmm. Danville, Virginia. It was a beautiful old house and great big sort of ballroom, but it wasn't too big. It was like everybody came, and Eunice was sitting in the front row, and I sang a couple of songs I learned from her. I could just feel their presence so strongly. It was to this, I just think of it as a peak experience. It was just wonderful because of that sense of unity. If you're a performer, that's what it's all about. It is a two-way street. For me, the thing that I have taken from my experiences among folk traditions from all around the country and and all over the world, and, and including and especially Irish traditional music, has been... You can treat almost any song with that kind of care and specificity and focus and fuel 
for that quiet fire. There are songs that I feel are, my voice is not well suited to telling its story best. And there are songs that I just don't feel like, like my way of giving them their intensity is right for the song. Are there songs that you don't incorporate into your repertoire and don't play with and don't work with, you're not the right voice for them, but you are waiting maybe to give them to someone or share them with someone who has that voice for them? But there are quite a few songs that I never intend to sing, and they're just, they're good songs. It's just, they're not me. Sometimes, on the other hand, I get infatuated with a song, and I do it for a little while, and then it just falls out of my repertoire, even though at first I thought I really liked it. Gradually, I realized uh, it may not be such great shakes, and I really, you know, it's very personal. Everybody's going to feel differently about it. That a song or a tune. I don't like to play these really noty hornpipes on the fiddle, for example, but other people really get a blast from those. And so certain things you're drawn to and certain things you're not. We were one of the groups I was in, we were trying to do winter songs and so but I told them that I had thought about doing it in the month of January, but I said, you know, I never really learned that song because it's too depressing. Yeah, it's pretty so, and it's just not me. And I don't tend to do a lot of their parlor songs. They don't really suit me. There aren't a whole lot of them that I really enjoy anyway. I appreciate them on some level because I mean I spent a lot of time with packing that as burn. That's a huge part of was a huge part of his repertoire. So I appreciate them without thinking, oh God, falling in love with the song. It's almost the way you are with people. There are some people that you, some people of whatever sex that you find attractive and others you don't, but other people find them attractive. And there's almost always going to be somebody who wants to sing their repertoire, so you don't have to sing a relief. That would be a lot of lifetimes to learn. Yeah, just a few. <laughs> Where can people find examples of, of what you've done? You mentioned a couple of Mel Bay books. What are some of those titles and or some of your stuff that you've put out? How can people find you, basically? Well, sad thing. Well, actually, that Academia website, I did put up both of the Mel Bay books on there. So it's not strictly academic. www.independent.academia.edu slash Julie Hennigan. Forward slash. Yeah, those are on there and you can order them from Mel Bay that you can at least get an idea of what's in them because I think there's a Google Books link or at least you can get the title and go. My CD, what's so Waterbug, was the label that I recorded my self-standing CD on American Stranger. Now really the best way to get those is directly through me and I can give you an email address. Yeah, I mean, if if you are up for sharing with folks how to get... So the, the album name is called... American Stranger. American Stranger by Julie Hennigan. So if you look for that on the interwebs, let's see if we can find it. Or you can contact Julie Hennigan at... J. Hennigan, so J-H-E-N-I-G-A-N, at alumni, A-L-U-M, as in mother, N as in Nancy, I, dot, N-D, short for Notre Dame, dot, E-D-U, because then I, I've got the physical ones. Yeah, I think you can get them on, I'm not sure you can get them on iTunes, Amazon, probably, places like that. They used to sell things like that to CD Baby, but I'm not sure whether they do the same thing. And I, I haven't figured out Bam Camp yet, so I'm not on there. Yeah. I think you can somewhere access the MP3s and download those, but I don't make it that 
much money off of those as I do on sales of the physical item. You know, they're in liner notes. And, and there's a lot of work that goes into the physical production of, of compact discs. How can people hire you or find you or connect with you t- to pick your brain and or have you share some of your music and craft and, and historical exploration of this stuff? How do people pay you? If you want to be, if I want to be hired, the best thing is to write me at that email address because I don't have an agent. I very much want to get my music website back up and running. But, but you can hear a few of my songs as well that are on the CD on YouTube. About five or six YouTube videos. A couple of them are montages with just the music, and I think four of them are from the Festival of the Sea in San Francisco in 2018. Mm-hmm. That's where you can hear me. Also, SoundCloud. I've got a few tracks from American Stranger on those, so you can listen to them, and then if you want more, you can write me, and we can talk turkey. Final couple of questions. The first is a little more serious, and that is, if you could say anything to someone young and starting out in the academia, the poetry, the song catching that you have done, or learning how to do some of the things that you have explored as a creative person in your world, what advice or recommendations? Well, if it's music, listen, listen, listen. And especially if it's traditional, then you really want to go find out who are the older practitioners of this art and listen to them and listen as widely as you can. Usually you then have to kind of choose where you want to go with it. Like my fiddling is very inflected with the Schlieflukra tradition, which is part of parts of County Kerry and Cork. It was just because I, I listened to it so much that it became a part of how I play. With something like poetry, read, 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 and listen, 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 because poetry is an oral art. I grew up hearing my father read poetry, and he had lots and lots of recordings of people reading. I really got to understand it has to have its own music. So music is always even a part of what I do in something that's often considered a non-musical form. And it's not just words on the page. As far as academia is concerned, I don't advise anybody to go into it anymore because it's kind of a dead end, at least if you're going to go into it with a job in mind at the end. it's Maybe it'll come back, but right now it's really in poor shape. If you can afford to go and just do what you love, do it, knowing full well that you might need to do something else for me. But again, read, read, read. If Say, you know, you're in, into English literature, if you really like novels, read lots and lots of novels. Writing academic stuff, again, it's just practice. And again, reading, you read things and you unconsciously sometimes absorb how you structure an essay and do this or that. It really helped me when I started teaching it. I'd never really examined a degree before. And I like teaching. There are things that you can get across and other things you just have to learn by doing as with anything else. If you want to be a beekeeper, you have to keep bees. Listen, read, absorb, and, and don't rush into things. Don't rush into performing before you might really be ready. You, you, you know, you'll know, really. Or you, you know, usually something clicks. I know a lot of people who regret their first CD or album or something and they wish they hadn't put it out because they're not quite ready. So don't feel you need to put it out there or put it on YouTube or anything until you really feel comfortable. And you have to feel comfortable in, in your skin in whatever you're doing. If you're young, there's really not as much of a rush as you might think. If you were a Muppet, any kind of Muppet, or combination of Muppets, what kind of Muppet would you be? Oh, gosh. 
any answer is is a perfectly reasonable okay. answer, by the way. Okay. Well, I mean, I like them all. I just never identified with any of them. I suppose Kermit I identify with the most. But I enjoy them all because they're terribly funny. They have such unique personalities and charms, you know, like Fozzie Bear as opposed to... You might be... A little bit okay. Don't don't take this any other way than than as I mean it, which is positive because <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the Muppets, and I actually think that of the Muppets, you are more Rolf, who's the piano player, who's kind of chill. <laughs> I forgot about it. And yet he's kind of one of the core Muppets, and he's in everything, and he's really pretty essential to keeping the whole crew together in a really nice cadence. He's got his pretty good flow. And also Janice. I don't even know Janice. Janice has the long blonde hair and she's sort of a groupie of Electric Mayhem, the band. And she's always the one saying the pithy comment at the end when they're all quiet, you know, all the Muppets shut down and quiet down. And she's always caught being the one finishing her sentence. And it is always pithy and always clever and always surprising. How funny. Well, thank you. I think I watched a different generation because I mainly watched them in the 70s. I didn't, and I've never seen any of the movies. I missed out a lot. If you have a chance to check it out, there's a, I mean, I love them. I just, I had. I do too. I, I just wasn't aware that there was a world of Muppetry that I had missed. It's helped me navigate a lot of, of folk music circles through a lens of just understanding that everybody is showing up as their full selves because they love something about it and to not get too hung up on perfectionism or being uptight or anything of the sort. The Muppets are just genuine. They are themselves and they keep showing up and sometimes they're a little over the top and they enjoy it. And, and I love that about them. So that's part of why I like them and, and why I like that sort of question as it applies to artists. Okay, I'm going to have to do some Googling. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, sure. for joining today and for having this conversation. Yeah, well, I hope I, I hope I contributed something valuable. I, I hadn't really thought about what I was going to say until <laughs> you asked the questions. Of course, that's part of conversations rather than, and I think that's valuable. This has been Mixed Media Talks, our forum for artists to talk shop with each other. I'm your host, Amelia Hogan, and I hope you have a chance to enjoy and check out Julie Hennigan, performing and creative artist, writer. You can find and support this podcast at https colon slash slash www.patreon.com slash mixed media underscore talks. Thanks so much. Adieu, my lovely Nancy, ten thousand times adieu. I'll be thinking of my own true love, I'll be thinking, dear of you. Will you change a ring with me, my love? Will you change a ring with me? It will be a token of our love. When I am far at sea When I am far away from home And you know not where I am Love letters I will write to you From every foreign strand
it's all that they can do. Well, we poor jolly jolly hearts of oak must plough the seas all through. And when we return again, my love, to our own dear native shore, find stories we will tell to you how we ploughed the oceans o'er, and we'll make houses to ring and the taverns they will roar and when our money it is all